there's just a lot moving right now. And I know um, plenty of people across community are trying to figure out what does this mean? How does it play out? And we've got 45 minutes in between meetings that the docs need to jump on this evening, honestly, to just jump on and answer some questions, maybe share some new information. We've watched um, plenty of spikes lately. Um, we thought we were getting more vaccines, whether it be Moderna or Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson, which I'm sure there are questions about that, into people's arms. And then we're still watching changes happen with regard to COVID and coverage, not only for our area, but quite frankly, across the country. And so we just wanted to spend some time asking some questions. You see, initially said, I can't wait to talk about it because there's lots of hesitation. There's also access issues. And then we found out, well, maybe there isn't an access issue. And so let's jump right in. Um, Isaiah Oliver, President and CEO of the Community Foundation of Greater Flint, um, your sincerely ignorant brother who knows very little about this health stuff, but I want to ask the questions and allow folks to access to the doctors. And so that's what today is about, just spending some time asking some questions, getting some clarity as you decide what you do, whether or not you get a vaccine shot or not, or quite frankly, after you receive the vaccine, what the process should be for you and your family. And so lots of questions. I'm going to do a slight introduction or a light introduction from Dr. Jennifer Edwards-Johnson, then a light introduction from Dr. Deborah Ferhoden, and then we'll jump into some questions. I'm Jennifer Edwards-Johnson, Family Physician and Community Assistant Dean of our Flint campus of MSU-CHM. All right, cool. Am I frozen on your end? Oh, you yeah, are. you're frozen. You are, but it's like the serious it's, face. It's a, it's a great still, though. I've yeah, so seen terrible freezes, and this is a good one. <laughs> Dang. All right. Well, I'm Deborah Ferholden, Associate Dean of Public Health, uh, Michigan State, epidemiologist, very much on the forefront of this COVID stuff. And even better, I've got all the data and my hands all the way down in it. So I'm ready. All right. I'm ready to go. I'll tell you, anytime that I can spend an evening with, with Marie Joy and Carolyn, I'm here for it. And that is what I'm yeah. here for. So let's jump right in. Tell, tell, tell us what's going on. Like, give us just a quick snapshot of what's going on and maybe the things that are that are contributing. So I just came off a week of the inpatient service last Friday. So I was rounding in the hospital, seeing patients in the hospital. Um, and half of our service was COVID patients, which is a lot for us. You know, we, in the, during the summer, we were at, you know, maybe one or two patients on the service of 20 or so patients being COVID patients. And when I rounded most recently, when I was in the hospital, half of our patients were COVID patients and perhaps more um, sort of astonishing was the eight. So we were seeing patients that were in their 30s and their 40s, um, which is consistent with the trend we're sort of hearing in the media. Um, so, you know, I guess I would want to start by kind of um, putting to rest any myths about the idea that younger people can't get it. We're certainly seeing younger people with it and we're seeing younger people in the hospital with it. Um, and I guess that's where I'll start. All right, Dr. Deborah. Uh, I'm just going to be frozen. I'm just going to be frozen. Yeah. So, so the community spread thing is, it's really troubling because if you dial back about seven weeks, our community case rate was below 3%. We were at really a record all time low and our community case rate as of last Thursday is 20.3%. 
So that means one in five people who are getting tested are testing positive. And we think of that as somewhat of a, a litmus test for what's happening out in community. So that doesn't mean that 20% of everybody in the community is COVID positive, but it's a good indication. And so the thing that I've noticed, and it's funny because my daughter is here visiting right now from Baltimore. And she said, mom, I'm not going out anymore. She's pregnant. She said, I'm not going out. She said, so many people are unmasked. She went to Meyer. She said, there were so many people without masks on. It's not like that in Baltimore. She said, mom, no, you can't even walk in the store without a mask on. Do y'all still have a mask mandate? I said, yeah, we do. But none of that stuff is being honored. So I think we got a couple things that are happening all at the same time. One, we reopened. February 1st, restaurants, bars, gyms, all that stuff reopened. Anytime you increase the opportunity for people to come in contact with another, you run the risk of increasing community spread. And we did that. The second thing that um, happened related to reopening is we started reengaging students. Students started reengaging in sports. And I think this myth that people have that kids are somehow either immune or it's no big deal, all of the sporting events, I think all of those things are contributing. We've also got these variants now. And B117 is very dominant um, in Michigan. We have the most known B117 cases. The reason that's relevant is because this particular variant from everything we know right now looks like it spreads more easily than the other variants. The vaccine still seems to be effective, but we're dealing with a, a more easily transmitted version of the virus. So maybe what people were doing before isn't enough, but if people are relaxing those protocols in the face of a more transmiss transmissible uh, variant, it's like a recipe for disaster. You put that together with reopening and we are where we are. Well, let's you know, oh, please go ahead. I will just, from what I'm seeing, I'm seeing the same thing, right? And I'll take the point of we're seeing people active in high school sports. And I think that's absolutely true. And one of the things that we have to consider is kids don't go to high school sports by themselves. Their parents take them, right? And so there's all of that risk for spread. And if you look at the age group, and if I think about the people who are hospitalized, they're people who have kids at home, right? And so they are either at these sporting events, they are out and about. The second point I'll make is I would agree with your daughter. I've seen like very, a lot of people not masked. A lot of people are out and about and not wearing masks. And I think that's kind of twofold, right? I think as you alluded to, we reopened, but I think people are tired. There's this idea of COVID fatigue, right? People have been in, at this for a year. They're sort of relaxing what they used to do. They are feeling a little bit better about was what was previously low case rates, and they're feeling better because people are vaccinated. But that doesn't mean we don't still need to be vigilant. So my, my question is about the B117 variant. So just talk to, the, to us a little bit about variants in general and how they're different. I mean, and I'll say variants and the vaccine. I'm just kind of trying to understand those two and how they play against one another. Always, all right. Um, <laughs> so when we talk about variants, we, we, we know about the COVID virus um, and what tends to happen when you have a virus in a community for a long period of, a period of time 
is that the virus begins to adapt and it starts to change. And with within the virus structure itself, the virus starts to make what we call mutations. And those mutations are an effort to sort of evade the things that we have been doing that keep the virus from spreading. So the virus gets better at sort of evading the things that we do. It gets better at evading our treatment. It gets better at evading um, mask wearing and things like that. And what we've seen with sort of B117 as an example is there's some data suggesting that B117 um, results in sort of higher viral loads contained in the nose. And that's that's part of why it's so easily spread. If you have more virus carried in the nose and there's more opportunity for the virus to be spread when you come in contact with people. Um, and so when we think about variants, really the best way to think of it is think of the virus working to get better at evading all of the things that we're used to doing to protect ourselves. When we talk about the vaccines, all of the data that we have so far on the vaccines has been mostly promising. And part of that is because our vaccines are both specific and general, right? They create a specific response to the spike protein. And we've talked about that before, but they also create sort of this general immune response in which your body sort of creates memory cells and it creates antibodies. So when your body does come in contact with the COVID virus or COVID variant, your body does a really good job of adapting and creating memory to previous things that it's seen and really responding to not just one little part of, of the COVID virus, but a lot of parts of the COVID virus. And when we have a variant, usually what happens is a really, really tiny part of the virus changes. So traditionally says it's spreading because of the younger ones is definitely a factor. And I think that you both have shared that younger folks are getting it and can and always could. And that was one of those myths that was kind of pushed around early on. And we're quite frankly debunking that myth, that myth now. My daughter has COVID with no symptoms and it's scary because we would have never known had, had tradition not got, got it and went and got tested, right? And so she lost taste and smell and went and got tested and then the family was tested and a positive daughter and they both have their first vaccine. And so all of those things combined, it's like, okay, what are what should we be doing in this case where we know young people are getting it and they're asymptomatic carriers of this? So um, should we be getting, should rapid tests be happening? Should we be getting cadence testing? Like what is the plan for getting tested when so many folks could be asymptomatic carriers? I want to talk a little bit about kids to, to kind of clar clarify, because it's, First of all, kids, is a, when we say kids, that's a really big group, right? That's anyone from zero to 18. Mm -hmm. And what we know is kind of older kids, right? 12 to 18 are a lot closer to spreading it like anyone else. And part of what we've talked about, about kids not spreading COVID very much has to do with sort of the receptors that children have as kids and how those receptors kind of grow over time. So. And young children, young children don't have the receptors that are needed for the COVID virus to bind and sort of um, infect kids um, as it does in adults. They don't have as many as the receptors, they're not as mature, all of those things. And so in general, that's why we said in younger kids, the rate of infections have been lower and they're not as likely to spread. And I would say largely, that's still true in sort of our younger kids. It's not entirely true. It doesn't mean no kids are 
going to spread the virus. But when we talk about kids not spreading it as much, that's kind of what we're talking about. Younger kids have sort of a lower risk of spreading it, which does not mean no risk at all. We get into our sort of older kid population and they have these receptors and they are capable of contracting the COVID virus and capable of spreading the COVID virus like anyone else. And I I'd point out that we're seeing a really low risk of spread in classrooms and we're seeing a really high risk of spread linked to sports, which tells you that a lot of the things that people are doing in classrooms are, are good, right? We're masking, we're staying away from each other, we're staying six feet apart. But once we get into sort of social settings, we're relaxing those things, right? We are closer together. We're probably breathing on each other more because you're playing a sport and you're breathing hard, right? So all of those factors lead to sort of more transmission of, around among young older children. So I think Deborah's still frozen right now, maybe frozen across the board. And so I'll, I'll just ask another question. Just the far end of our question was really focused on the vaccine. They have their first vaccine. And so what does the first shot versus both shots, if you have a Moderna or a Pfizer, what types of protections do you have in that time? It's like a three to one, three week to one month period in between, what types of protections does that offer you? Yeah, so the data we're seeing after the first vaccine is somewhere in between 50 and high 60s, maybe low 70s percent of protection across all the vaccine, well, across the, the two dose vaccines um, for the first shot. Um, and, it, and that protection kind of comes from an initial that initial response that we talked about earlier, right? Your your body creates an initial response, it creates antibodies. What it has not done is sort of create those memory cells and activated a sort of later what we call T cell response, which is a really robust and advanced response that your body takes response that your body takes time to build up. Um, and that's kind of what we're we're waiting to activate when we give those two shots. It's giving your body time to create the necessary immunity to be effective against this COVID virus. So I know there's probably some numbers and we probably typically depend on our public health expert to kind of share this piece of the numbers, but just how many people have the shot, the Moderna, the Pfizer, and then maybe a few questions about the Johnson & Johnson as we lean into what we've heard around uh, blood clots and that kind of stuff. Like what information is available about who has the shot, who's, who has access to it, who still wants it, has their arm up and their hand up and can't get it? Like, what are we learning or what do we know right now regarding the vaccine? So I'll jump in, even though I'm frozen. Um, so the best resource locally is the health department. If you go to gchd.us forward slash coronavirus, you can see where we are, who's been vaccinated, you know, uh, how many shots we've had in arms. You probably heard that there is a recommendation that people pull back on the Johnson & Johnson. I want to be really clear. I, I can't remember the number, but I want to say they had administered 6 million doses and they had six people that developed blood clots. They're trying to figure out if there was some causal link. That's a very, very, very small number. And I don't pretend if I was one of the six people that developed a blood clot that it wouldn't be significant but it's a very small number. It's not a, it's not formally been pulled back, but it is a recommendation. Why? Because we're learning a lot in real time. So it's just a recommendation that people halt the use of Johnson & Johnson so they can do a little bit of causal sort of investigation to see 
if in fact it was linked to the vaccine? And if so, what's the profile of the patient who might be at risk for a blood clot so we can make sure that those people aren't getting the Johnson and Johnson and instead are getting one of the other vaccines? So even that is okay. Um, maybe Dr. EJ can talk about if you think you have a blood clot or something like that, what are the signs and signals and what should you do? Yeah, so I, I'll second, especially that that data, right? We have seen six out of 6.8 million doses. And I agree that there's a difference between how often something happens and how severe the outcome can potentially be. And I think how severe the outcome thought um, and particularly what we call central thrombosis or, or brain spots potentially, those are severe outcomes. And so those that's why we're at this place where we're saying, okay, let's pause and let's let's get some more information. Some of the pauses also related to this idea of, let's make sure doctors are appropriately sort of situated to treat this should it happen. So a lot of what we've seen is that in addition to these clots, we've seen that a lot of patients have had this, this sort of um, added what we call thrombocytopenia or low platelets. And so the treatment for a clot is in direct contrast with how you would treat low platelets. And so a lot of what we're waiting to do and a lot of what this pause is about is, okay, wait, we have to make sure like Dr. Verholden alluded to, we've got to make sure that docs know what the profile of the patient who might be coming in looks like and how to treat this effectively and what to do. If you're worried about a blood clot, the biggest signs in people who have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and, and had um, had symptoms has been headache. Um, so headache, any signs of not feeling well, I would be talking to my doctor um, just because it's better to be safe than sorry and it's better to have that conversation. And that in fact is part of why we're pausing. Yeah, could you? I don't know how deep you want to go into this, but I know it was scary for me because they. I think the reports were that the women were between 18, they were all women, they were all between 18 and 48. They all had blood clots in many places, but most of them, I think the one thing that was consistent was that they were in the brain. And it was like six cases, six rare cases of these blood clots of like 7 million odd kind of um, potential folks that had the Johnson Johnson vaccine, right? And so I'm not... I'm not to belittle or downplaying the, the amount of cases or um, the severity of the issue, but we're talking about six cases that are really being reviewed right now by that CDC advisory panel. Is that is that true? This is what I'm, I think I've read it like two yeah. places. I don't know how true it is. That's exactly, I mean, what you're seeing is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing six cases and we've vaccinated about 7 million people. But I think that's important to identify because it tells you that we are, appropriately monitoring a response, right? It tells you that once we saw something severe happen, that we responded and we said, let's pause and figure it out. Um, at my institution, we've switched to Pfizer. Um, so this is something that we wanna be careful about, we want to be thoughtful about, and we're pausing to get more information about. And the pause has been extended, and I know across Tennessee County, again, the best place to look is gchd.us forward slash coronavirus to get more information. But I think in Tennessee County, that pause is clear for us as well. And most of the of all of the vaccinations that are going forward are both Moderna and Pfizer. Is that right, Dr. Deborah Ferholden? Yeah, Moderna and Pfizer are still very much in the mix. And sorry, I just got my picture up because evidently no on the live, people just see a black screen, but you can see the picture. Um, and I probably look better in that picture anyway. Uh, so, you know, you got, you got to go with it. You got to be nimble. So, yeah. So 
the, the Moderna and the Pfizer, we, we don't have any pause for caution right now. So we're still moving forward with those. And the thing that I really want to um, emphasize for people is this, you know, even though we're in a pandemic, people are developing heart disease, people are developing blood clots, people are dying, babies are being born, like everything is happening as normal. I don't know because I'm not on that data safety monitoring board that's going to be doing the deep digging and looking at those six cases. It's coincident though in some way, right? You've got six women that have developed blood clots out of almost, sounds like closer to 7 million doses. Do you know how many people have developed blood clots since the due start? To COVID? Yeah, and oh. due to COVID. Like, yeah, due to COVID and just, <laughs> just because. I think know, the so rate of blood clots around COVID is 16.8% and the blood clot rate for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine would be something like 0.00 something percent. Um, so, but again, I would highlight that these are severe outcomes, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so I guess my, my follow-up question, well, actually, I'll just ask a different question. I don't have a whole bunch of questions in the chat, but maybe, but it does show that folks are just listening on. So they are getting good information. This is my, my follow-up question. So I am, I get my second shot tomorrow. My first shot, um, which was four weeks ago, almost a month ago, second day, I was tired, achy. Um, no throwing up, no fever, just achy the next day, and then it kind of passed. What should folks look forward to? And I don't know which shot you had, Dr. EJ, or or you, Dr. Furholt, and I had the Moderna shot. Um, what should folks look forward to after the first one and then maybe after the second one? Like, what are you hearing that folks should be looking looking forward to, and how do they plan appropriately for it? You mean in terms of symptoms, or what should they be excited to be able to do? symptoms and we can talk about what they should be able to do as well because i think the world around us is changing and what you can do with the at least what we thought we could do once we got vaccinated is about the same as what we could do before provided all of the, the necessary kind of precautions that you have to take to protect yourself so both of those questions are appropriate so i i think the um to answer your first question after you receive either vaccine i've talked to people who have had you know fever chills <laughs> Headache. These symptoms should go away within go away within 48 to 72 hours. Um, fatigue is a big symptom, and I've seen those happen after the first dose and the second dose. Usually, worse after the second dose. Um, have heard a little bit, sometimes a little bit worse with Moderna, but I would say if um, subjectively, I'm hearing it about the same. I would say you know CDC guidance after you've been vaccinated is, you know, you can be really thoughtful about your interactions. You might consider um, having a socially distanced lunch with another friend who's been vaccinated, right? Um, you might be more thoughtful about interacting with people once they've been vaccinated. Um, I think we have to be thoughtful about the fact that we are in a surge. So practicing some additional caution would be reasonable, right? Um, but I think what the vaccination provides you is an added layer of sort of, um, it puts your mind at ease a little bit because that biggest sort of end factor that we're looking at is no hospitalizations and no deaths. And that doesn't mean that you won't potentially get COVID. It just means your symptoms are likely to be mild and you are less likely to have a severe outcome. Um, and so I think, you know, that puts your mind at ease. Still exercise some caution, though. 
So here's a great uh, thing I want to um, follow up on. Uh, Kathy George said, Moderna knocked me out. Vic, zero symptoms with Pfizer. And it's interesting because both of my kids have received their first dose of vaccine. I got the Pfizer vaccine. Literally, my arm was tender to touch uh, for about two days afterwards. Guess what I did? I stopped touching my arm. Like that was the that was the easy solution for that. And I took um, about eight hours after I got my first shot. And this was a recommendation that the vaccinator gave me. I took uh, ibuprofen. And then eight hours later, I took Tylenol. And then eight hours later, I took ibuprofen. And I had no symptoms. Just a little bit of a sore arm, first and second shot. Both of my kids got the Moderna. And they both did get tired and have a headache. And my daughter's arm was really, really sore. Now, she was the one who has also already had COVID. And she's got a little bit of autoimmune stuff happening. But it was all very manageable. The thing that is interesting uh, about this conversation is Tanisha says she's scared to get the second shot. But she got her first shot and then contracted COVID. I don't think she should get the second shot. Then. Is that right, Dr. EJ? Ooh. I don't actually have that answer. Um, I, I think that's an answer worth talking to your doctor about. Um, there, there, I have seen this conversation and don't know where we ended on it, whether people who have um, early on the conversation was complete this series, but there, there's a lot of data to suggest that once you've already had COVID, your sort of antibody response is like 10 times that in someone who hasn't had COVID. I am not entirely sure where we are relative to advising people on finishing their series. Um, but it's definitely a question worth discussing with your physician and definitely something that when we talk about again, we'll know. So the reason I mention and ask is because our original recommendation is if people were COVID positive to wait 90 days to get vaccinated. So if you get shot one and then contract COVID, I don't have the answer for that either. We'll, we'll do some digging and bring that back to people. Yeah, that for the data, if you were COVID positive, initially part of that waiting 90 days was because we didn't have a lot of vaccines and we knew, right, that natural immunity gave you about three months of protection. And so after we sort of had some vaccine supply, we started talking about, okay, as long as you aren't symptomatic, you can get your dose of vaccine. But I think the question of if you've gotten one dose and then you get COVID, should you finish the, finish the series? is a really important question and it's something we'll get more information on. Thank you yeah. for getting more information on that question. I will tell you, I did not get the same recommendation that you received, Dr. Dr. Furholden, from your vaccinator. Um, I guess they saw these big muscles and decided that I could handle it and they didn't tell me anything about Tylenol or Advil or or any of the other drugs that, that people take when they when they have pain issues. I didn't get any of that. And so well, first day again- It's for regular people, not for superheroes. Exactly, it's the pink. That's what it is. That's what they're afraid of. The pink and green had them had them had them think, psyched out. But that said, I I am not afraid, but I'm trying to prepare appropriately for the second shot. And for me, it's tomorrow at eleven o'clock. And so, is the recommendation that I take two Tylenol in the morning and then rotate it? I mean, what is the recommendation? Because I just don't know. Like I don't. I didn't have a vaccinator that opened up to me and shared with me what I should be doing to prepare. And I'm I'm, I'm leaning into you all to ask that question. So, 
there's been mixed data on this, right? There's some data that suggests that if you take specifically ibuprofen before a vaccine, that it can blunt the, the antibody response that happens, right? It's a really small study initially done in children, an easier study to do in children because children get a lot of vaccinations, right? But we don't have, we still don't have great data on it. And there, it, the studies have been sort of mixed. And so the sort of response and what I tell the people who are getting vaccinated is one, wait until you have symptoms. If you need to take something, take something, right? I would, you know, I'd slightly lean towards, I'm not gonna brand call anything out, acetaminophen. Um, I, I, would, lean, I would lean toward um, not ibuprofen. Right, just because the, the the studies we have seen have been more with ibuprofen, um, so if you can lean towards acetaminophen and wait until after you've developed. I can't even spell what you just said. What what, what are you what are you talking about? Tylenol. Okay, thank you. I'm sure I'm not the only person on this call that was like, yeah. Because I said Tylenol, but my grandfather used to call the refriger refrigerator. He called it the frigidaire. Um, that is still a thing in my family no judgment so if you can go let's let's pull up a couple of questions most of them were comments saying that hey i've taken it hey i had some side effects but there are some questions about how we move forward so sharice bradley and i'll also say john hagan's both said hey listen what should we be looking forward to like there are ways for us to protect ourselves some folks are feeling like hey listen i can be less vigilant because i have this vaccine or i have the first shot and I'm preparing for the second shot. I've built up some antibodies. Some folks are saying, hey, we're way too active. Florida was open. Texas is, was open. Michigan is now opening up, and we're seeing what's happening. Should we be shutting down? From a health professional's perspective, and I'm also I'm going to box that in because you're not government officials. You're not making decisions for the public in that way. But from a health professional's perspective, what should we be doing to take care of ourselves? And then ultimately, what should we be leaning into to support communities? I think that the that box is really important um, because, from my standpoint, I would like to see people staying inside, being more careful, not engaging in social activity, because we are in a surge, right? When we weren't in a surge, and our case positivity rate that Dr. Perholden talked about earlier wasn't one in five, which means if you go outside your house, you will encounter COVID. Basically, when that was lower. I felt a lot more comfortable about saying, okay, I might meet someone at a coffee shop for coffee who's vaccinated, right? Or I might meet my colleague to do this because we're both vaccinated, we both received both doses. I'm not doing anything unless I have both doses. I've had both doses. Everyone I'm going to interact with in person should have had both doses as well. But from a health professional standpoint, I would say until we see case positivity rates decline, until we are no longer in a surge, be vigilant, wear your mask, socially distance. It's not really time to get out there and socialize right now. I think that is coming as soon as we get over this surge. And I would say, you know, with with two or people, a pool of vaccinated people, that it looks really optimistic for us to be able to have those conversations about being active. But until the surge is over, I'd like to see people being vigilant. And, and I want to add one thing to that, which is that all, all viruses mutate, right? The extent to which they mutate, how quickly those mutations happen, whether or not those mutations become the more uh, prevalent strains of a virus in a population, all of that is variable. But viruses need hosts. 
The virus needs the human host to replicate and do its thing. If we don't stop spread, what we're giving way to are more variants. The potential impact of those variants remains to be seen. The thing that we need to do right now is stop spread. We must stop spread. We, we are, I just, I, I wanna impress on people what a 20% case rate means. This is where we were when things were at their worst. And I can tell you, the number is going to be higher for this week. We're looking at the data as it's coming in. The community case rate is going to be well over 20% this week. We have got to stop spread. And the only way to do that is prevention. And somebody asked the question, should the state shut down? I'm saying the answer to that is yes. We've given people too many options and those options, and Dr. Reynolds says this all the time, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. The more that this thing spreads, we've already now got at least two or three known U.S. originated variants of this virus. You got to think the B117 variant, and somebody had asked earlier, what is B117? So they genetically sequence uh, the virus. And then it all has you know numbers and letters attached to it. So the B117 is just what little piece of the genetic molecule on the virus changed, right? And all viruses do this. This is their way of surviving. So there's nothing special about it. And the names are weird, right? The names are weird. It's weird to call it a UK variant. I didn't like them calling it the South Africa variant, just like I didn't like our former president calling it the China virus. I think all of that stuff is bigoted and loaded and we shouldn't do that. The point is we are labeling the variants. We could name them like hurricanes. We could call one Adam, one Bob, one Kathy, one, you know, whatever. The point is these variants are now in our community and the more spread we get, the more variants we're gonna get. What so, we so need- Could you do me a favor and just talk a little bit specifically just, and I know you all have a call in not too long as so I wanna make sure I push, like, please, Tell me what's unique about Michigan, if anything. I mean, we're watching spikes happen in Michigan. I've watched people, no disrespect to my Florida friends who might be on here, right? But we've watched Florida and Texas be open for a long time. And they haven't seen the same spike that we're seeing right now. Like, what is unique? What unique set or mix of kind of, I would say, interventions are happening right here in Michigan at this moment that's causing the spike? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that I would offer. So number one, we we don't know for certain what, what case rates look like in other places. Realize that Michigan was the first state to transparently report our racial disparities in COVID. We were one of the very first states to put all of our COVID data online. One of the very first states to publish, even though it made us look bad, to publish our COVID vaccination data and, and tell one on ourselves that we have 44% of the data missing race and 70% of it missing ethnicity. I think one of the things that sets Michigan apart is one, we have a robust testing system and people are using it. People are getting tested. Our students, you're, where you sit on the board, Isaiah, CMU is, is in person and those students are getting tested. Even though MSU is not in person, all those athletes and any students who have any campus contacts are all getting tested. You know, what's you're right. They're not getting tested. So the real story is yet to be told in lots of other places. 
So I don't actually believe that Michigan is the worst of the worst. I think Michigan is the best at testing and transparency and reporting. If anything, we're sort of canary in the coal mine for the rest of the country because we're at least being honest and confronting our problems. So that, that's a part of it. If there was anything I think that might make Michigan slightly unique, we are very politically divided. This notion of not wearing your mask as some you know, demonstration of your rights and your free will and your political will, I do think we don't have enforcement around the mandates that we do have. And I think our divided politics are starting to trump public health, not starting to have been trumping public health. And so I think, give it, give it another two weeks. I bet we're gonna see a, a lot more red spots on the map. Okay, that's really helpful to me. And for me, as a, I'll say, I describe myself as a logic-driven pragmatist. I'm trying to figure out like, what's the what is that line, the thread between what's happening, what's happening in community, what our interventions have been, is letting, leading to this. I guess understanding that others may not be testing at the same rate, it may not be as thoughtful about transparency is a helpful as a helpful kind of additive for me into all these things that I feel like I'm trying to pull together to make sense of this. I would add, so I got the the answer to the second shot. This is why you keep friends on text, right? Um, is that yes, you should get your second shot as long as you're as soon as you're feeling better. Um, so that's the answer. If you had your first shot, you got COVID after the first shot, and then. Um, you're wondering about whether you should get your second shot. Yes, you should get your second shot. Um, keep asking those questions because the data changes like every day or weekly. So those, these are important questions. I had the same question about what was different about Michigan. And actually I shot Dr. Ferholden a text like, I'm not fully getting this. And I spent some time on Twitter talking to my colleagues and infectious disease and just like trying to figure this out. And I think what Dr. Verholden alluded to is absolutely accurate. There's also this space where, despite having a really big first surge relative to some other places, our we our caseload wasn't as high to begin with, which led to some like it led to less natural immunity in Michigan, right? So we had more of a population of people in this sort of fourth surge that had opportunity to get COVID. And we had more young people because we've successfully vaccinated a large proportion of our older population. And so I think what Dr. Verholden said is absolutely right. I think we're seeing a numbers game. I think we're seeing us be really successful at vaccinating an older population. We have a middle, younger age population that hasn't been successfully vaccinated yet and didn't have a significant amount of natural immunity already, right? And so they were super at risk for getting COVID. And those are the things that I think, those sort of trends that are changing rapidly are what I think we're likely to see sort of, and we're already actually seeing it spread out of the Midwest, right? So we're seeing kind of similar trends start in Ohio and other states. And I think we're gonna continue to see that. And I would offer one last thing, which is there are better objective metrics of what's happening in other states. And hospitalizations, I think, would be a much better metric because you can't fudge that. So I want to remind people, COVID cases are only a function of COVID testing. If you don't get a test 
and you have every single symptom of COVID, lost taste and smell, fever, chills, body aches, fatigue, all that, and you call the local health department and you say, I've got all these symptoms and everybody in my house has COVID. If you don't go take a test, you are not getting counted anywhere, right? So, so COVID cases are a function of COVID testing. So we also have testing that remains high. So we're better able to pick up cases. And if you look in other states, you'll notice their hospitalizations for COVID-related okay. illness are going up. So how is it that your hospitalizations are going up, but disproportionately low relative to your cases? When we've done a much better job and people are doing better when they get COVID. I do believe that the whole story is not being told all across, across the country. And again, we are a front runner in transparency and reporting and keeping our testing high. So we're able to better identify our problems. I think that's super important. Those places that have relaxed restrictions aren't testing as much one. And then the, the metric that is really important is hospitalizations per cases, right? And our hospitalizations per cases aren't what they were in April or December, right? They're, they're, they're slightly lower, um, which doesn't mean that that's good news necessarily, but I, I think there's more to the story. No, one, I want to thank you all for, for doing this. I am asking for some time, and I'll, I'll let everyone know when it's going to be. I'm hoping Saturday or Sunday, sometime this weekend, after I've, I've kind of worked through whatever happens in this arm over here, and I can have a bit of a story to tell about my experience with the second shot. But I also want to give folks some time to maybe kind of gather their questions and their thoughts, because I think it's going to be important for folks to get questions answered directly. And I love it when you two are here. I tell you both, you, Carolyn and Marie Joy, you're amazing people. You do amazing work. We appreciate you, but I know you all have a meeting this evening that you need to jump to. So I want to thank you for jumping on. We'll give about 45 minutes maybe on Sunday where we can jump on and have some of these questions. I want to thank all of the folks that have been jumping into the chat, offering comments and thoughts. And I look forward to seeing you all this weekend um, as we talk more about this spike and what we can do as a community to respond. Thanks again.